Hi everyone, my name is Lindall. I'm going to be reading uh, the first bit of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and that's found on page 1053 of the Church Bibles. Now in response to the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have relations with a woman, but because sexual immorality is so common, each man should have his own wife and each woman have her own husband. A husband should fulfil his marital responsibility to his wife, and likewise a wife to her husband. A wife does not have the right over her own body, but her husband does. In the same way, a husband does not have the right over his own body, but his wife does. Do not deprive one another sexually, except when you agree for a time to devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, Otherwise, Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say the following as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all people were just like me, but each has his own gift from God, one person in this way and another in that way. I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain as I am, but if they do not have self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with desire. I command the married, not I, but the Lord. A wife is not to leave her husband, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to leave his wife. But I, not the Lord, say to the rest, if any brother has an unbelieving wife and she is willing to live with him, he must not leave her. Also, if any woman has an unbelieving husband, and he is willing to live with her, she must not leave her husband. For the unbelieving husband is set apart for God by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is set apart for God by, her, by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be corrupt, but now they are set apart for God. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. A brother or a sister is not bound in such cases. God has called you to live in peace. For you, wife, how do you know whether you will save your husband? Or you, husband, how do you know whether you will save your wife? However, each one must live his life in the situation the Lord assigned when God called him. This is what I command in all the churches. Was anyone already circumcised when he was called? He should not undo his circumcision. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? He should not get circumcised. Circumcision does not matter, and uncircumcision does not matter, but keeping God's command does. Each person should remain in the life situation in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? It should not be a concern to you. But if you can become free, by all means, take the opportunity. For he who is called by the Lord as a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called as a free man is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brothers, each person should remain with God in whatever situation he was called. About virgins... I have no command from the Lord, but I give an opinion as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Therefore, 
I consider this to be good because of the present distress. It is fine for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. Are you loosed from a wife? Do not seek a wife. However, if you do get married, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But such people will have trouble in this life, and I'm trying to spare you. And I say this, brothers, the time is limited. So from now on, those who have wives should be as though they had none. Those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they did not possess. And those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. For this world in its current form is passing away. I want you to be without concerns. An unmarried man is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or a virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, so that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. Now I'm saying this for your own benefit, not to put a restraint on you, but because of what is proper, and so that you may be devoted to the Lord without distraction. But if any man thinks he is acting improperly towards his virgin, if she is past marriageable age, and so it must be, he can do what he wants. He is not sinning. They can get married. But he who stands firm in his heart, who is under no compulsion, but has control over his own will, and has decided in his heart to keep his own virgin, will do well. So then, he who marries his virgin does well, but he who does not marry will do better. A wife is bound as long as her husband is living. Uh, But if her husband dies, she's free to be married to anyone she wants, only in the Lord. But she is happier if she remains as she is, in my opinion, and I think that I also have the Spirit of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Tim. I'd be great if you can keep that passage open. Uh, One of the uh, easy things about talking about the topic of sex is you don't really have to have a very catchy introduction to get people interested, if you know what I mean. Sex sells. Um, I started selling a car this week. I don't know what the connection is, but anyway, it it does, it works. So I'm not going to have to do much work to get you on board here. I just say sex. Sex. Let's get into it. All right, we're done. Uh, Some parts of preaching on this are easy. Other things are very challenging. Uh, There's some real challenges about preaching about this topic. Um, One of them is this. I'm going to mention two. The first is we're very confused about it. We live in a world that's very confused about things like marriage, divorce, sex, singleness. Um, And I think we are in the church as well. I was asked this last week and a half, I've had two questions about is it okay to divorce and remarry. I've had someone uh, tell me that um, when they've become a Christian, they've decided no more dating ever. Um, I've had someone ask me, how do you be faithful as a wife when your husband's left you for another woman and left his faith behind? I've had someone ask about same-sex marriage. I've had someone tell me they feel like a nobody and that there's something wrong with them because they're not married. And I've spoken to someone who, you know, people who said that sexual immorality, sex outside of marriage, not a problem. 
This is all at our church in the last week and a half. It's a big issue, important issue. And a lot of the time we don't quite know what to think. And I don't say that as any kind of judgment. It's just an observation. It's a complex area. Now, in Corinth, the people that this letter was written to, they were quite confused as well. Uh, They were in um, a culture much like ours. Sex was everywhere. Divorce was common. Um, And people were finding they'd become Christians. They get converted. And they didn't know what to do sexually, relationship-wise. Some people were saying, well, I'm forgiven. Do I just, so I can just go and do sex, whatever I want. Others were saying, I'm single. Do I need to get married? Married people were saying, do I need to stop having sex in my marriage? Or married people who are married to an unbeliever were saying, should we get divorced? Should, shall we leave? There's all this confusion. And so Paul writes to answer some of these questions. And my hope is um, we'll get some answers too. However... <laughs> Don't get too excited. We're not going to be able to answer many questions. There are lots of questions we've got. Um, what I want to encourage you to do is, is use your next steps card to write down questions you've got. Um, put them in the, in the bag and hopefully we can answer some of them next week. Uh, otherwise, I'll try to contact you separately to answer questions. But also, I want to encourage us as a church to be helping each other work through these questions. Help each other to be a church that lives um, in a holy way in this world. Uh, our, our world really needs for us to be like that as a church. But the second thing that makes preaching on this topic difficult um, is, it, is it stirs up heaps of emotions. Um, not all of them happy ones. Some of us long to be married, and this whole issue is, is very close to the heart. Um, some of us have been hurt either in marriages or just in a whole area of sex. It's a great sadness. If you're finding this really hard to listen to, um, I'll understand if you kind of do this. I won't feel like you're being rude or anything, um, or if you have to leave, that's okay. Um, I do want to encourage you to talk to each other, find someone you can pray with, talk things over. But I'll try to sort of set out the plan for the next little while so you know what's coming up. Um, Basically, we're we're looking at this chapter for two weeks, um, and I've written, almost written, one very long sermon, and I'm just going to chop it in half, basically, along the way. So please come back next week, otherwise this will be very incomplete. Um, so today we're going to spend the first chunk of time sort of positioning ourselves. How do we think of ourselves as we come to this passage and these commands? How do we get ourselves in the right context to hear these things properly, make sense of this chapter? And my answer to that question is going to be, we need to think of ourselves as holy pilgrims. We're not people who just stop in this world. We don't just belong here in this world. We're moving through it with Jesus on towards resurrection, through the world with Jesus, on towards resurrection. And as we see things that way, it'll change the way we think about marriage and singleness. I think that's what Paul's doing here. He wants to look at both these aspects. So that's what we'll then do after positioning ourselves. We'll think about marriage in this world. That's all we'll have time for today. We probably won't have time for that. But then next week we'll do marriage in view of the resurrection. And then singleness in this world, singleness in view of the resurrection. That's the plan. I hope it's helpful. Um, I, to talk about myself for a second, I've not been uh, single for quite a while. Um, so I'm going to ask someone to, to help me with this and next week address us as a, as a Christian single person um, to, to get their perspective. Um, someone who's actually in it, in the trenches. Um, I'm also not a woman. I've never have been. Uh, not for a day. Um, hope never to be. Um, not nothing against women. I love women. Um, one in particular. But I have a woman here, a Christian married woman, who's going to speak to, this is Sarah Condi, she's going to speak 
later in this talk uh, just a few areas of being, uh, being a Christian married woman. Um, looking forward to that. be very helpful. Uh, but first, this first point, kind of positioning this whole thing. Um, my first point is this. We, as Christians, are defined by Christ's pilgrimage. Not by life circumstances. This is the big thing. When I first came to this chapter, I thought, this is weird. I don't know if you had the same kind of thoughts as it was being read out. Very weird, right? The first half, all about marriage, sex, 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 all that kind of stuff. Uh, the first half, there's almost no room for singleness. And then all of a sudden, second half, it's all about singleness. And what are we saying about marriage? If you have a wife, live as though you have none. What? And right in the middle, you get this weird bit about circumcision and, and slavery. And the circumcised becoming uncircumcised. You think, what is going on with that? The answer is hooks and heavy weights. But don't ask too many details about that one either. This is a, a, it's a to stop thinking about it. Yeah, I shouldn't have gone there. Anyway, it's a weird chapter, isn't it? It's weird. What I realized as I thought more and more about it is it's that random bit in the middle that actually makes sense of it all. And that shouldn't have surprised me because that's what Paul's been doing right throughout the letter. Chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 9, chapter 13. He's talking about something. In this instance, he's talking about marriage. And then all of a sudden he goes, it's kind of like, it's kind of like this other thing. And he goes, oh, I get what you, yeah, I get it. That's what he's doing in this little random bit. So, so let's get into it. Let's look at verses 17 to 24. I want to ask you, what's the main point he's trying to get at? Because he says it in verse 17, verse 20, verse 24, three times, the main point. Remain as you are. He says it three times, remain as you are. He's speaking to a bunch of people who've become Christians, and all of a sudden they think, I've got to change my life circumstances. I was single, I've got to get married. I was married, I've got to stop having sex. Or I've got to, I've got to leave my spouse, I've got to change. And he says, no, 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 just chill out. Remain as you are because, here's the big thing, because you are no longer defined by your life circumstances, whatever they may be. You are defined by Christ now. He gives two examples of that. The first is that circumcision one. The second is the slavery one. I just want to pick up on the slavery one. So look at verse 21 with me. Verse 21. He says, were you called while a slave? It should not be a concern to you. But if you can become free, by all means, take the opportunity. Is being a slave, is that your life circumstance? Don't stress. I mean, if you can get free, great, get free. But, but don't stress. Why not? Well, because of verse 22. He gives the reason there. Verse 22. For he who is called by the Lord as a slave is, at the same time, the Lord's freed man. Likewise, he who is called as a freed man is Christ's slave. You see, there's this life circumstance that this guy is in called, I'm a slave. But at the very same time, because of what's happened in Christ, he's not a slave, he's a free man. But because of his identity in Christ, his life circumstances, that's, that's not the whole story. There's now something so much more significant about him. He's actually Christ's freed man. That's the important thing. Yeah, sure, he might be a slave. Sure. And if he can get his freedom from that, he will. That's fine. So Paul wants to say, you are not defined by your life circumstances, good or bad. 
you're defined by Christ. So let me pause right here and, and make a point of this. Do you have circumstances in your life um, that you think are pretty lame? You've you got a dead-end job, you're unemployed, you're single, you're sick, you've got no friends. Friends, don't, don't let those things get the better of you. Don't, don't let yourself be kind of defined by those things as if that is who you are, full stop. You are not defined by these things, but by Christ. We have become his people. We've become his holy people. We are so much more than just our life circumstances. We are so much more than that. In fact, I want to say we are Christ's pilgrims. Let me say more about that. That's a bit strange. Let me say more about pilgrimage. I want you to come with me back to chapter 1 and verse 2. Back to the beginning. We're going to pretend that we're pilgrims walking through this letter. And the first landmark we come to is chapter 1, verse 2, where we're told who we are. To God's church at Kirribilli, let's say, to those who are sanctified, that is made holy in Christ Jesus, and called as saints, that is holy people. That's who we are. The holy God is with us. We're his sanctified, holy people. And then verse 18, chapter 1, verse 18, this is our bedrock. This is, this is where we're rooted. Chapter 1, verse 18, the message of the cross. It's foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is God's power to us who are being saved. We're holy people. Our message is the message of the cross. But, but we live in this world. We live in this messy world. This messy world which... Chapters 1 through 4 is full of pride and division. Chapter 5, this world through 7, this world of sexual immorality, where we have sexual urges and we have sexual failings and sexual hurts. And then chapters 8 to 10, we walk through this world full of idolatry. And then chapters 11 through 14, we walk through a world that's selfish even when it comes to worship. And we walk through this world, friends, this is our world, and we walk all the way up to chapter 15. We walk all the way to chapter 15, up to resurrection. You see, that's where our pilgrimage is headed. It's not just a pilgrimage through this world. It's got an end point. It's got a destination. The light of the resurrection glory shines on our path. And you know what? It changes our path. Because the glory of the resurrection shining on our path as Christian people in this world, we see the path is actually a little bit different to what others might see of it. And we'll get to that in the weeks to come. Next week. Sorry, not the weeks. Just one more week. Um, I was reminded uh, by Dan just the other week um, about the book called Pilgrim's Progress. Has anyone read that book, Pilgrim's Progress? Any hands? Slightly better educated than the last service. Well done. You should read it. It's a very good book. Uh, I think it's still the best-selling novel ever. Maybe. I could be wrong about that. It's right up there anyway. Good book. It's a story, an allegory about a guy called Christian. Um, And he's walking through this life, and he has all sorts of challenges. um, But he's got his eyes set on the celestial city, resurrection glory. Um, And his name's Christian. Which I think, you know, come on, dude. John Bunyan's the writer. You're a creative writer. Can't you think of something better than Christian? Come on, man. Really. But what, you know what, why did he do that? Why did he call him Christian? He wants us to identify. We're all that pilgrim. 
This is a picture of pilgrim, uh, Christian sorry, on his pilgrimage. It, it's all of us. None of us are sitting still. We're all on a pilgrimage as God's holy people through this difficult world onward to resurrection glory. That's who we are. I wonder if we can keep that kind of image, maybe that little picture in our heads as we think about this issue. Because I think if we want to understand this passage, understand sex, marriage, divorce, we need to think of ourselves like this or something like it. In fact, if we want to understand a whole bunch of the Bible, we need to think of ourselves like that. Take up your cross and follow me, says Jesus. You don't get that unless you think of yourself as someone on a pilgrimage through this world onto resurrection glory. That's who we are. So, so when I first came to this chapter, like I said, I was quite confused by it all until I got this picture in my head. And then it began to make a bit of sense. Because you see, that, that first section of our chapter, all about marriage, lots of talk about sexual immorality, it's very earthy. And I realized, well, well, that is us, isn't it? We're people trying to walk through this world and be holy in it. This world full of immorality, full of sexual urges, sexual mistakes. How can we be holy in this world? And Paul then talks about sex within marriage. But, but then... But then he turns that corner and he, say, he, he draws our attention to the resurrection glory that we're work, walking towards. So look with me, verse 29. This is after that middle section, he then turns to verse 29 and he says, I say this, it's like this kind of solemn announcement. The time is limited. This is the time wherein it is limited. So from now on, those who have wives should be as if they had none. We're going to talk more about that very soon. But... The resurrection, the time is limited. It totally alters this life circumstance called marriage. And then at the end of verse 31, for this world in its current form is passing away. In light of the resurrection, things change. Our life circumstances look a little different so that the slave doesn't have to worry so much about being a slave because there's something more important about him. And it's in that context that Paul can then talk about singleness. That whole second bit's about singleness pretty well. Because it begins to make sense in light of the resurrection. More on that next week though. So friends, before we leave this point and get on to the nitty gritty stuff about marriage this week. I just want to ask, do you think of yourself like this guy? As a pilgrim. Or do you think of yourself, are you entirely defined by your life circumstances? Do they eat you up? Do they consume you? That's who I am. I'm the single person with the poor job. I'm the really well-off person who's better than other people. Or do you define yourself as, as being Christ's holy pilgrim? My fear, and I'll talk about this more next week, my fear is that a lot of us think of ourselves as God's holy people, but we've stopped here. We're finished at this earth. This earth, this world is our destination. We're going to make ourselves comfortable, settle down, forget about the future. Forget about resurrection glory. I think it's a big trap, especially for our married people, myself included. But more on that next week. More on that next week. I hope you come back next week. Well, that's all by way of sort of our approach. Um, now we're going to dig into things. And as I said, next week... Marriage in light of the resurrection and singleness. This week, marriage in this world. And so my second point is this. Married pilgrims in this world seek 
radical intimacy. So it turns out, it seems in this passage from verse 1, um, that there's some people in the church, married people, who've thought that maybe they should stop having sex with their partner, with their spouse. Paul's just said, chapter 6, verse 18, run from sexual immorality, and they've taken it a little bit too far. Um, you, ever, you ever driving um, along the road, and, you, and you, you go past a speed camera, and it's a 60 zone, and everyone slows down to 50? Do you know this thing? I'm like, come on. Am I the only one who gets really uh, frustrated about that? People, 59 is fine. You don't have to go 50. Do you know? Yeah. I think that's these guys here. Um, they're not the ones who are kind of libertarians with sexual immorality. Um, they hear Paul say, flee sexual immorality. And they say, well, maybe we'll just leave sex alone altogether. Go the whole way. And anyway, sex is kind of, it's a dirty thing. You know, it's not right for holy people like us. They've got this kind of Gnostic, Platonic thing going on. So how does Paul respond? Well, let's look at verse 2. Paul says, Because sexual immorality is so common, each man should have his own wife, and each woman should have her own husband. Um, now, straight up, he's not saying, everyone should have a spouse. Go down to the spouse shop, get yourself one. I know you wish there was such a thing. Many of you. There's not such a thing. We know that. He's, that's not what he's talking about. He, what he's trying to say is, if you are married, have your spouse. He's meaning that in a very sexual way. It's actually the same word in chapter 5, verse 1, for living sexually with your stepmother. Remember that dodgy bit we talked about before? It's the same idea. It's a, it's a sexual relationship. Paul's saying, in view of this world that we're in, sexual morality all around, sexual urges, if you're married... Have your spouse sexually. Make sure your relationship is a sexual one. May that strengthen you against sexual immorality. I find it refreshingly realistic. It's quite earthy. It's not the sort of thing many people want read in their weddings. But it's very realistic, you know. There's no fairy tale kind of holy grail wedding. Ooh, it's, it's very earthy. And in case you're wondering what the big fuss is about sexual immorality, what's so wrong with it, let me give you an example. Joseph Unwin, historian, studied 86 different uh, societies spanning 5,000 years. Uh, what he found is this. He found an unexpected and direct correlation between sexual continence, that is keeping sex within marriage, and the ability of society to grow and remain healthy. That surprised me. He found that once sex outside of marriage became the norm for society, every one of those 86 societies lost its cohesion, its impetus, and its purpose. Paul takes sexual immorality very seriously because it's serious. But please don't hear him saying, uh, well, we've all got sexual urges. Uh, sexual morality is very serious. So we've got this thing called marriage where you can just pour it all out. Let yourself go. That's not what he's saying either. He's actually encouraging holy pilgrims, Christian people, Christian married people, uh, to pursue radical intimacy in their marriage together. And he actually says three quite radical things which we'll look at briefly. And in each of these things, I'll ask Sarah to come up and give uh, a, a woman, married woman's perspective on these things. So the first thing he says is, is, is radically sexual. Marriage should be radically sexual. 
So look at verse 3. A husband should fulfill his marital responsibility to his wife, and likewise a wife to her husband. Back in the day of Corinth, and probably today as well, absolutely, the thought was sex in marriage is, is that kind of thing you've got to do to get kids, right? But the fun, hot sex happens outside of marriage. Um, I think that's our society, isn't it? Like, we don't think sex in marriage is sexy sex, do we? That's, that's how we are, right? But Paul is busting that right up. He's saying, no, 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 marriage is where sex lives. Uh, he wants to say married couples give yourself to each other. And he's not necessarily restricting this to kind of intercourse. He's saying, give your whole body to the other person. Make your relationship a, a sexual relationship. And not just for the sake of having kids. It's bigger than that. Give yourself. And verse 5, he says, the only reason to stop doing this, and only for a time, is so you can commit yourselves to prayer. I don't see many couples doing that. Paul's insisting that marriage should be sexual. Sex needs marriage. Marriage needs sex. Like I said, our culture thinks good sex happens outside of marriage. Half, I heard this statistic this morning, half the married, half married men, I'm not sure where this is from, half of married men admit to having had an affair. We think sexy sex happens outside of marriage. Christian brothers, it is not so. Christian married brothers, it is not so. Good, hot sex happens inside marriage, not outside. And the researchers agree, married sex is good sex. It doesn't happen on a computer screen either. So let me urge you, married brothers, give yourself to your wife. Woo her. Enjoy her. Make her feel loved. As the proverb says, let your fountain be blessed and take pleasure in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful fawn, may her breasts always satisfy you. Be lost in her love forever. May I remind you, that's in the Bible. Woo! Wow! Woo! Hot! Seeking godliness, is that's part of it. Uh, having said that, I, I realize this is not just, for some of us, that's not easy to hear. Um, it might be really difficult in, in your marriage. If you're married here, it might be a really difficult thing for you to hear for all sorts of reasons. Uh, can, I, can I set you this, this challenge? Can you try to move forward in some way this week? Maybe just start with a conversation. Sarah, do you want to speak on this? Thank you. I just want to say outright, I'm out of my comfort zone. Thanks. You are. <laughs> Thanks, Dan. I'm speaking as a woman. I've been married to Keith. This year we will celebrate our 35th wedding anniversary. Thank you. But um, together, Keith and I run marriage enrichment courses for couples and we spend a lot of time talking with couples about their marriage and often the conversation is about sex so anyway here I go have and I'm speaking to wives have you ever read song of songs if you have you can't help but notice that the sexual relationship between the man and the woman is passionate and deeply sensual it's deeply connecting 
and both are active participants. It's not just about the pleasure of the man. The woman is, being, is enjoying being close to her beloved and she is aroused. It's a beautiful read. Um, and I encourage you to read it this week if you haven't read it. This is a couple who are definitely naked and unashamed, which is the picture in Genesis 2.25. It's how God intended sex to operate. Now, there will be some wives here who will relate to this woman in Song of Songs. You love sex. However, this might not be your experience. Maybe it's never been your experience. Past events have left scars. Sex is infrequent. When you do make love, you're tired, you're not interested, you don't feel particularly sexy or appealing. Our society is really no different to the Church of Corinth. Sex seemed to be taking place everywhere except between married couples. Today, married couples are having sex less than they used to 10 years ago. Research has actually shown that. That's curious, isn't it? Why? Some of the reasons... Um, presented are couples are too busy, they're too tired. And then there's online porn. In 10 years, the number of men looking at porn has increased by 40%. 25% of married women look at porn. So it's not just a man's problem. I want to encourage us all to take God's word seriously to believe that what it says is always best for us. If you're committed to your marriage, wives, um, make time to love your husband. Um, Schedule lovemaking. Initiate it. If you do that, he will love it. Your marriage is intended to be fully sexual. That's that first point, radically sexual. Yeah. Scheduling lovemaking is pretty dorky, but it's good. Anyway. Um, <laughs> the second thing is radically equal. Um, back in this sort of patriarchal society in, in, in Corinth at the time, um, sex was something that a man did to a woman. Um, so if you look at verse 1, you get that sort of sense there. Um, they write this thing, they say, It is good for a man not to have, sexual, sorry, not to have relations with a woman. What about the woman? <laughs> Where she in this? And Paul writes back, very interestingly, going on from verse 2, that because sexual immorality is so common, each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. A husband should fulfill his marital responsibility to his wife, not just vice versa. And, and the bombshell is verse 4. A wife does not have the right over her own body, but her husband does. And the men in the room were thinking, that's right, that's how it is. Still very much the case in in many cultures around the world. The bombshell is the second half. In the same way, a husband does not have the right over his own body, but his wife does. This is is lifting the the place of the the wife in 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 marriage to be, well, equal, but to be a partner. You know, to have a say, to be an equal partner in the relationship. Sex is not something a man does to a woman. It's something they share in together. At its most beautiful, this is what it is, an equal sharing. Um, I think for this reason, it must involve conversation. Um, We must be able to talk to each other and say, where are we at with this? How can I help you? How can I serve you? Because it it is equal. 
Christian men, we must not be abusive sexually within marriage. Um, We must not force our wives. That's an absolute abomination for men who are meant to be loving their wives like Christ loved his church. Sarah, you're going to speak a bit on that sort of thing from a, a woman's perspective. Yep. Yep. Again, recent research has um, shown that often it's the women, the wives, who are calling the shots. And what Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians 7 is that sex is not about me and it's not just about him. It's about us. So um, can I encourage you women, wives, to turn your sexual relationship into one that reflects the us-ness that's captured in Song of Songs. The other thing I'd like to say is if you use lovemaking as a bargaining chip, like if you say, well, if you put the garbage out, tonight we will, um, please don't do that. Can I encourage you to try to understand your husband's need for lovemaking? For him, sex is emotional Having sex, making love, meets emotional needs deep within him. When couples make love, oxytocin, the bonding hormone, is released, and men will only have a huge surge of that after they've had an orgasm. And this is when he will actually act far more in love with his wife. Um, And this is when he will feel closest to us. And this is how we can communicate powerfully that we love them. That's why wives ask for things afterwards. Anyway, um, so that's radically equal. The third thing is radically committed. Uh, it seems in, the, in Corinth, um, divorce was really easy. Uh, in fact, they didn't even call it divorce. You'll read there, it's just called leaving. Because that's what you did. Uh, if you wanted to leave, pack your bags, leave. That's the end of your marriage. That was kind of how things worked in Corinth. Um, and it seems like that was kind of the, what was happening in the church as well. Someone would be converted and the spouse wasn't and they'd leave. Just leave. That's simple. Um, the reasons for them was, you know, I think maybe, you know, I'm being, uh, I could be being, um, I'm meant to be holy and they're not a Christian. So they're going to kind of somehow drag me down. Um, so I, I can't possibly be married to them. I can't be one flesh with them. Um, but the reasons in Corinth more generally were probably pretty similar to us these days. Um, you know, we've fallen out of love. Um, they're not the person that, that I married. Um, I found a better option. I- irreconcilable differences. What does Paul say? Verse 10. I command the married, not I, but the Lord. A wife is not to leave her husband. If she does leave, she must remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to leave his wife. This is the way God set up marriage. He set it up to be a deep commitment, a lifelong permanent commitment. Yes, we know divorce happens. It does happen. But we as Christian people ought to be deeply committed in our relationships and, and not sort of brush marriage off lightly. Our churches must be examples to the world on this. Let me say, if you're here tonight and you have been divorced, I, I hope you don't hear me condemning you or anything like that. I want to urge you to forget what is behind and press on towards holy uh, pilgrimage with the Lord Jesus. 
You're forgiven. You're loved. Press on. Let's all press on together. Uh, now, as I said, the particular situation in, in Corinth was that the unbelieving spouse married to the, to, to the believer. I'm going to ask um, Sarah to speak for a moment on uh, unbelieving wife married, married to, um, sorry, believing wife married to an unbelieving husband. I just want to acknowledge that that would be really hard, and a lot of wives do find that hard. Um, but can I encourage you to love your husband and to cherish them? but not to do that with your words, to love them with your behaviour. Let them see your purity and reverence, your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Ask the Lord to help you be that woman and ask your sisters in Christ, you can ask me to pray for you and to pray for your marriage and to pray for your husband. You really need to be working at this together as a church. Well, there's those three things. Uh, I think if you add them all together, you get a picture of radical intimacy. Um, you see, intimacy needs the right setting, um, by which I don't mean candles, you know, a glass of red, a bit of Barry White on in the background. Ooh, baby, I love you. You know, this is not, this is not what I'm talking about. The setting for intimacy is radical commitment, a sense of security, safety, dependability. It's uh, radical equality, respect. You know, we're a partnership here, service of each other, conversation and sex, giving yourself body and soul. You see, it's actually not just sex in marriage that strengthens us against sexual immorality in the world. It's, it's actually this radical intimacy of being united, body and soul, that can strengthen and help us. If you're married here this evening, this is my challenge to you. This week, have a conversation about this area of your life. Just have a conversation about it. How are we going, darling? Are you feeling connected? How's that intimacy? How can I be serving you better? Well, friends, that's, that's the, the first part. That's the first of our kind of really practical blocks. Marriage in this world. Uh, next week, we'll see marriage in light of the resurrection, as well as singleness. And that'll kind of alter things. It won't change what we've said, but it'll add to the picture, uh, which will be good. I hope you're here next week. But before we close, I want to just ask this question, come back to this question again. Do you think of yourself as a pilgrim in this world? Or are you just settled down in this world, taking on the world's values, being defined by your life circumstances? Brothers and sisters, we must see ourselves as going beyond this world, as God's holy pilgrims. Um, you know the great thing about the book Pilgrim's Progress? Uh, Christian is very rarely traveling alone. Um, that's us. We don't travel this path alone. We're in it together. Um, I, I want to encourage us to, over the next couple of weeks to be talking about this together. Talk over supper. It might sound awkward. You don't want people to overhear you. Just go for it. Don't worry. Let's pray for each other. Help each other to be holy in this sense. Um, I want to give you just a moment. I'm going to pause for a bit to give you a chance just to think on this. Um, think of perhaps your failings in this area sexually or in marriage, or just the way uh, perhaps you've let life circumstances kind of get the better of you and define you. So I'm going to give you a chance to stop and think on that, and then I'm going to lead us in prayer. Um, and after that, we're going to take communion together, which will be good. So why don't you take a moment, and I'll, I'll lead us in prayer in just a moment.
Lord, we want to thank you so much for making us your holy people. Um, we want to thank you so much that because of Jesus, we can be more than just our life circumstances. Uh, we are your holy people. Uh, we thank you so much that while we travel through this world, you are with us. We thank you also that our brothers and sisters at church are with us. Uh, we thank you for giving us each other and pray that you'd help us help each other to live as your people in this world. Keep us in holiness, we pray. Father, I do want to thank you so much that you forgive us. I want to pray with those here this evening who perhaps are feeling guilt on this issue. We thank you so much that you forgive us and wash us clean. Please help them to know complete washing and forgiveness. Father, I want to pray for the married couples here and ask that you'd help them to have that conversation this week. Help them to make progress. We do pray that their marriages would be one of radical intimacy, of deep connection. We pray that they would strengthen each other to live holy lives in this world as well. Father, work in us as a church so that together we would live holy lives in this world as we look forward to resurrection glory. Amen.